Unfortunately, for my wife and kids, I like to sing around the house. Sometimes it's a song that we sang the previous Sunday in one of our gatherings. Sometimes it's one of my favorite old hymns. The less you think I'm more spiritual than I am, sometimes I throw in a little Rob Thomas. Recently, I've been singing a little bit of Walking in Memphis by Mark Kahn, classic American song. I like to sing. Um, I like to sing these songs, but, and it's a wide variety of songs that I sing, but there's always one thing in common. It never sounds good. You can add that to the list of things in my life where I just have no talent whatsoever. But as much as I like to sing around the house, my favorite times of singing are with the saints. Singing with the saints is edifying, is encouraging, it is uplifting, it is life-giving. Gathering with brothers and sisters in Christ who know and love the Lord to proclaim the glories of his name, oh, there's nothing better. When we come together, we sing. Through our songs, we confess our own weakness, our proneness to wander, to unbelief. We sing about our sorrows, our brokenness, and yet we lift our voices to proclaim that Christ is our sure and steady anchor. Wow, what a joy, what a blessing, what a gift, what a privilege to lift our voices together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Jenny Pollock, a Christian British writer, wrote about singing during the COVID lockdowns in London. She asked, why is singing so important for Christians? And I want to share with you some of her answer. She wrote, setting a message to music makes it far easier to learn. The memory verses I learned in music as a child have stayed with me far longer than those I simply memorized by rote. I can remember the slogans and phone numbers of companies who put their radio advertisements to music that I heard decades ago far more easily than I can remember important information that I read yesterday. She went on, and music seems to be lodged in a different part of the brain than other things we hear and learn. A lady with dementia at my parents' church could play hymns on the piano long after she had lost the ability to perform far simpler tasks. Music connects in a way other sources of information don't. But add in a congregational or collective element, and it has even more power. Singing together unites us and has been found to increase our sense of community and belonging. Some suggest this is an evolved behavior, though, of course, to the Christian, it sounds more like a gift of God, especially when we remember that God gave us a whole book of songs to praise and worship him with and recorded many other songs throughout the Bible. Singing together builds community. It strengthens our bonds with one another, and it can bring life to one another. She said, singing together binds us together, but what we sing matters too. Singing forms us and shapes us around the truths 
we sing about our God, his salvation, and his call on our lives. It embeds those truths in us and binds us to one another in a way that no other practice can. And it is wonderful. Amen? Our passage today is Psalm 95. And in our passage, the psalmist calls on God's people to sing his praises, tells them why they should do so, and finally gives a word of warning. I'm going to read Psalm chapter 95, and I encourage you to follow along. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. In Psalm 95, we have a call to worship, the reason for worship, and a warning. First, we have a call to worship. The psalmist begins by calling on God's people to come and worship him. The psalmist, in the first two verses, the word us is used four times. This psalm is about God's people worshiping God together. We sometimes refer to this as corporate worship. Why do we refer to this as corporate worship? Well, one of the definitions of corporate in the Merriam-Webster uh, Dictionary is of relating to or formed into a unified body of individuals. So when we talk about corporate worship, we're not referring to the business world. Rather, we are referring to a unified body. When we refer to the church, we're referring to the unified body of believers. When we talk about corporate worship, we are referring to worshiping as a unified body of believers. In both the Old and New Testaments, we see that God's people are meant to live lives of worship and devotion unto the Lord. And we see in both the Old and New Testaments that it's important to the Lord that his people gather together to worship him. We see it here in Psalm 95. In the call to worship, we see a corporate dimension which is consistent with God's desire for his people to worship him together. In the call to worship, the Israelites were also instructed on how they were to worship 
when they came together, when they entered his presence in the gathering of the people, they were to do so with grateful hearts, giving thanks to him. They were to sing to the Lord, make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. When you hear these verses, do you get the sense that the psalmist expected God's people to worship God with exuberance? He called on them to gather and worship with the expectation they would be eager to sing with hearts overflowing with love and gratitude. After all, gathering with God's people to worship God is an incredible privilege. Do you believe this? Do you believe it is an incredible privilege to gather as God's people to bring glory to his name by singing his praises? Recently, arguably the the best soccer player in the world came to play for a major league soccer team in the United States. His name is Lionel Messi. He's playing for the soccer club in Miami. And his first game with the new team was this past Friday, I believe. And the people showed up. The crowd showed up. I wouldn't really know it because I didn't watch the game. I don't really watch soccer. But I watched a couple highlights. When he subbed into the game, the crowd went wild. They were excited. They were exuberant. They considered it a privilege to show up to see his first game for their team. And with less than two minutes remaining in the game, he scored the winning goal. And you can imagine how the crowd went wild. They were exuberant. They made joyful noises. They didn't need to be told to do so. They didn't need to be reminded earlier in the day, hey, if you got a ticket, it's really important that you show up. No one needed to tell them that. They considered it a privilege to be there. They enjoyed it. They made a joyful noise. I wonder what elicits an exuberant response from you. What gets you excited? Maybe it's when you're working hard at a project at work and it comes to completion. You get it done. You land the plane. You finish. It ends well. Maybe you close a deal. Maybe it's when you see a beautiful sunset. You can't help but make a joyful noise. Maybe it's when your team wins a big game. You shout for joy. Maybe it's when you get a good grade on a test. What a relief. Maybe it's when you get a a better refund on your tax return that you were expecting. There are times when we make joyful noises automatically, without even thinking about it. It just happens. I think we can all probably think of specific examples where we made a joyful noise simply because that was the right response. The question then is, how does your exuberance or enthusiasm in those situations compare with your enthusiasm to gather and sing 
God's praises. Brothers and sisters, do you consider it a great privilege to gather with God's people to worship God? Do you look forward to this? Are you excited to get up on Sunday morning to come and sing to the Lord? Is it your duty or is it your delight? Sometimes we have to do things out of duty, right? It's not as though the feelings are always there. Sometimes we have to put one step in front of the other. Sometimes we have to show up out of duty. It's better to show up out of duty than to not show up. However, we want the Lord to work in our hearts in such a way that gathering with his people to sing his praises is our delight. When we gather, it is good to enthusiastically sing aloud with joyful, grateful hearts. It is good for you to lift your voice, to sing loudly. You can smile. You can raise your hands. You can enjoy this. I love sitting near people who sing loudly. Then when I sing loudly, it doesn't sound as bad. I love hearing the saints raise their voices, proclaiming these gospel truths from a heart that is full in love, love and gratitude. Sometimes when we sing a particularly joyful, exuberant song, we clap. People clap at the end of it. That is a good thing. If we're singing a particularly joyful, exuberant song, it's, it's not a bad thing to clap. Why? We're simply making a joyful noise to the Lord. We don't need to hold back with that. God's people are exhorted to make a joyful noise, singing songs of praise with a grateful heart. But we also see that the psalmist instructs the people to worship the Lord with reverence. God's people are told, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord. What does bowing down and kneeling before him demonstrate? It is a posture of humble submission, honor, and reverence. God's people are not meant to treat entering his presence lightly or flippantly. Rather, we come before him with awe, reverence, and holy fear. Have you thought about what it means to worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord? Do you see how this helps define our relationship with him and how we are to relate to him? What is your posture before the Lord? Are you quick to humble yourself before him? Do you approach him with reverence? Is it clear in the disposition of your heart that he is God and you are not? On the one hand, we are to approach God with joyful enthusiasm as we sing his praises. On the other hand, we are to approach him with reverence, awe, and humility. But we should not view these things as being at odds with each other. We hold them together. As God's people, we are to be characterized by both. Charles Spurgeon said, we should shout as exultingly as those who do triumph in war and as solemnly 
as those whose utterance is a psalm. It is not always easy to unite enthusiasm with reverence, and it is a frequent fault to destroy one of these qualities while straining after the other. The perfection of singing is that which unites joy with gravity, exultation with humility, fervency with sobriety. I think we can think of examples of Christians and traditions that tend to chase after one while destroying the other. There might be some churches or traditions who really emphasize the making a joyful noise than the enthusiasm, maybe too extreme. Maybe they're uncharitably characterized as the charismaniacs. Maybe on the other end of the spectrum, you have people who put a heavy emphasis on, on the reverence and maybe they're uncharitably characterized as the frozen chosen. But what do we desire? What do we seek? We want to worship the Lord joyfully, exuberantly, with reverence, humbly submitting ourselves to Him. In Psalm 95, we are also given the reason for worship. Why does the psalmist call on God's people to come into God's presence with grateful hearts to make a joyful noise by singing songs of praise? Why does he call on them to bow down and kneel before the Lord, humbly and reverently submitting to him? Because he is the rock of our salvation. The Israelites could look back at how God had saved them, how God had delivered them, they were a people who were oppressed under the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. They were enslaved, treated brutally, and yet the Lord acted on their behalf. The Lord delivered them. He rescued them. He saved them. And many times throughout their history, he worked on their behalf to defeat their enemies who surrounded them. They could proclaim the battle belongs to the Lord. They could testify that the Lord was the rock of their salvation. Moreover, he is a great God, a great king above all gods. The Israelites were surrounded by nations who believed in a number of gods, and it was not uncommon for these people to believe that this little God had control over this region over here, or this element of creation over here, and this other God had control of this, that region over there, and that element of creation over there. The psalmist declared, no, that is not the case. Our God is king of all. There is no region or element of creation that he does not rule. His rule is comprehensive. He is the creator of everyone and everything. Everything belongs to him, and he rules over all. But the psalmist went further than that. The Lord is not only a great God, He is not only a great King above all gods, He is our God. He reminded the Israelites, We are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. The Lord is not only mighty and sovereign, but He is also personal and He is near. He not only holds the world in his hand, but he also cares for us tenderly as a shepherd cares for his 
sheep. The Lord is a shepherd king who cares for his people. The Lord set his love and affection on the Israelites, leading them, caring for them, providing for them, and protecting them. He knows his people. He loves his people. God's people have every reason to worship him and exuberantly and reverently praise his name. Some commentators note the link between Psalm 95 and Psalm 100. Listen to the similarities as I read Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Of course, we can see the similarities making a joyful noise to the Lord, entering his presence with thanksgiving. He is our God. He is our maker. But there is a little difference. David Gunderson writes, these two psalms bookend the intervening psalms, which all honor God's kingship. Psalm 95 praises God as the maker and shepherd of Israel, and Psalm 100 praises God as the maker and shepherd of the nations. These connected verses capture the message of Psalms 95 through 100. Israel and the nations will come together under God's rule. The Lord is king over all. He is a good king. He revealed in the Old Testament that his plan was not only to gather the Israelites into his fold, but people from all nations. Why is the Lord worthy of our worship and gratitude? Why is it a privilege to gather with his people? Why is it a delight to joyfully sing his praises and reverently bow down before him? Because he is the great shepherd king who holds all things in his hands and tenderly cares for his people. In light of all this, our passage ends with a warning. The end of verse 7, the psalmist shifts from giving positive commands to negative commands, meaning he begins by telling them positively what they ought to do. Do this. Sing God's praises. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Come into his presence with thanksgiving. Then here at the end, he warns them with a negative command. Don't do this. First, do this. Then at the end, don't do this. The warning is a negative command. So what is this command that he, negative command that he gives? He said, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then he referenced the wilderness generation as an example of those who hardened their hearts. Who were these people he referenced? Who were these people who put the Lord to the test? He is referring to the generation of Israelites known as the wilderness generation, 
those whom the Lord delivered out of bondage in Egypt, brought to Mount Sinai, entered into a covenant with them, demonstrating his power, demonstrating his love beyond any shadow of a doubt. And yet they doubted him. They complained against him. They failed to believe. They failed to trust him. That generation was characterized by their quarreling and their unbelief. We read about their quarreling and the testing of the Lord in Exodus 17 and their outright rebellion against the Lord in Numbers 14. That generation from a certain age up did not enter the land that the Lord gave to his people. Those who quarreled against the Lord, those who rebelled against him, those who failed to trust him, to take him at his word when he had proved himself beyond any shadow of a doubt, did not enter into the promised land. It was the next generation, the younger generation, that was able to enter into the promised land. This generation of Israelites had been delivered from slavery and oppression by the Lord, who delivered them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. They witnessed the Lord perform numerous extraordinary deeds on their behalf. Then he set his love on them, choosing them from all the peoples of the earth. Yet as Gunnarsson writes, but their fears grew louder than his voice. Their fears grew louder than his voice. And they hardened their hearts. What a tragedy. Brothers and sisters, do you see how the wilderness generation serves as a warning for us? They heard the voice of God. They witnessed his saving power. They received his covenant love, yet they went astray in their hearts. The Bible uses the word heart to refer to your, most, your innermost person, the core of your thoughts, feelings, and choices. They went astray in their hearts and did not know his ways. Think about that. The Lord says, they did not know my ways. How? How could this be the case? The Lord revealed himself to them through his mighty deeds. The Lord revealed himself to them through his law, through his instructions. The Lord, the Lord revealed himself to them in a myriad of ways. They should have known the Lord. They had no reason to not know his ways. And yet, because they went astray in their hearts, they did not know his ways. Listen to Proverbs 4.23. It says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Are you keeping your heart with all vigilance? Do you hear the stories about those who went astray in their hearts, those who hardened their hearts, and think that will never happen to me? We are all called to guard our hearts diligently, vigilantly. And how do we hear his voice today? We hear his voice through his word. God has spoken 
through his word. We read in scripture that all scripture is breathed out by God. If you want to know the voice of the Lord, find it in his word. We do not put the Lord to the test by demanding that we hear his audible voice. No, we demonstrate our trust and our faith in him by knowing and believing that we hear his word in scripture. How much is his word reverberating in your heart and mind? Do you know that when we gather, the word is central, intentionally so? When we gather, we pray God's word. We sing God's word. We preach God's word. We enact God's word. God's word is central in all that we do when we gather because we need to hear his voice. And as we hear his voice, we must guard our hearts so that our hearts do not become hardened, so that we do not gather and hear his word preached and sing his word and pray his word and enact his word and then leave here and go unchanged and then leave here and quickly forget what we have heard, what we have sung, what we have prayed. We need to guard our hearts. In our passage, the psalmist calls on the people to worship the Lord, their shepherd king. In Psalm 100, all the earth is called on to worship the Lord, who is their shepherd king. And brothers and sisters, we too are called to worship the Lord, our shepherd king. Yet, we have more of the story than the Israelites at the time Psalms 95 and 100 were written. Hundreds of years after these Psalms were written, Jesus came into the world. In John 10, 14 to 16, he said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is our shepherd king who gathers his sheep from all nations and brings them into one flock. He knows us intimately, and we know him. We know him because we listen to his voice. Our shepherd king laid down his life for us to bring us into his fold. And this is at the heart of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners in Jesus Christ through his sinless life, his death upon the cross, and his resurrection from the grave. Our shepherd king came, and in humility, he laid down his life for us. We are all in need of a savior. We are all sinners. God is our maker, as our psalm proclaims. Yet we have all rebelled against our maker. We have all turned and gone our own way. 
we've all rejected his rightful rule over our lives. We have all rejected him as our king. That is what sin is. Every single one of us is guilty of this. We've all fallen short. We are all in need of a savior. We are all in need of the forgiveness of our sins. And God, who is rich in mercy, sent Christ into the world to be the savior we desperately need. And Jesus lived a life without sin, which we have all failed to do. And he died upon the cross to take the punishment for our sin in our place. On the third day, he rose from the grave, conquering death, and he appeared to hundreds of people for 40 days before he ascended into heaven, where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And he has promised that he will return. And when he returns, there will be a final judgment. And our only hope on the day of the final judgment is Jesus Christ. He is our only hope. Now, during this period of time, between his first coming and his second coming, he commands us to repent of our sins, to believe in him, and to be saved. Friend, if you are not a Christian, this is what Christ calls you to do. He calls on you to repent of your sin, to believe in him, and be saved. I urge you to do so. Do not wait another day. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Believe and be saved. Jesus is the rock of our salvation. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And he never lets us down. Brothers and sisters, we need to remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel continually. We need to continue to heed the voice of our shepherd king. We need to keep our love from growing cold and our hearts from becoming hard. And it's Christ's design for the church that we do this together. Just as we see in Psalm 95, God's people were called to come together, to sing his praises together. We too are to come together so that we can encourage each other, strengthen each other, hold one each other accountable, build each other up. The author of Hebrews warned the Christians to whom he was writing so they would not fall away from following Jesus. In warning them, he referenced Psalm 95 and the wilderness generation. In Hebrews 3, 12 through 19, he said, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. We must not let our hearts 
become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We must not be overcome by unbelief. We must not lose our confidence in the gospel, and we must not fall away from the living God. And we do this together. We exhort one another to this end. We are meant to help one another guard against the hardening of our hearts, against the deceitfulness of sin. A little later in the letter of Hebrews, in chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, he said, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. You can't encourage and exhort people with whom you don't meet. You can't receive encouragement and exhortation from people you keep at arm's length. We need one another. We are to do this together. And finally, we need to see the role of singing and guarding against the hardening of our hearts. In Colossians 3, 15 to 16, we are instructed, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We guard our hearts from becoming hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, by gathering regularly, rejoicing in Christ with grateful hearts, admonishing one another, encouraging one another, and singing songs to one another. These are all means by which the Lord keeps our hearts soft and our love for him strong. He is our shepherd king who is worthy of our exuberant and reverent worship. Therefore, let's guard our hearts by encouraging one another, exhorting one another, and by making a joyful noise together, singing songs of praise with a grateful heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is a privilege to gather as your people to worship your great name. There is no one like you. You are the great God, the King above all gods. You are our God. We rejoice in you. We delight in you. We praise your name. We pray that we will be a people who are characterized by exuberant and reverent worship of you. We pray that we will guard our hearts. We pray that our hearts will not become hard. We pray that our love would not grow cold. We pray that we will not be deceived by sin. But may we love you and may we stir one another up to love you, to praise you, to walk in your ways. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.